For decades, America has tried to combat the harms of drug use primarily through banning drugs and incarcerating people who use them. But this has caused a violent underground market for drugs, increasing crime in our communities. It's caused contaminated substances, increasing overdose deaths, and it's caused incarceration to skyrocket, destabilizing families. What we're doing isn't working. Crime, death, and broken families are the collateral damage of using the criminal justice system to address the public health issue of drugs. If you're looking for a better path forward, you're in the right place. What if we changed our drug policies to prioritize life, health, harm reduction, and thriving? And what if it benefited all of us? Our criminal justice approach to drugs had a beginning and it can have an end. Join us on the journey to end it for good. I'm Christina Dent, your host. And if you're new here, End It For Good is a nonprofit started in 2019 based in Mississippi that invites people to support approaches to drugs that prioritize life and the opportunity to thrive. This podcast is one of the ways we do that. You can head over to episode 34 to hear my story as a conservative Christian foster mom changing my own mind on the best path forward with drugs, and then come on back and dive in deeper. I didn't change my mind overnight and most other people don't either. We all need time to learn, think, ask questions, and explore. Whatever your perspective is, I'm glad you're here. Let's journey together. Welcome back to the End of For Good podcast. I'm Christina Dent, your host, and I'm really excited because I have my friend Floyd Rogers Jr. here with me today. Um, got connected to Floyd a couple of years ago and was able to meet him in person when he came to our um, Drug Policy Summit last November in Hattiesburg, Mississippi. And he has just a really interesting story, um, a story I think that's helpful to illustrate some of the things that we talk about uh, here at End It For Good. And so I'm really excited to have him. So Floyd, welcome. Thanks for having me. Thanks for Um, having me. Good morning. Floyd is the associate pastor of the Peaceful Rest Missionary Baptist Church, and he's also a real estate and stock options investor. Um, and he lives in Alabama and he's the dad to, uh, Jackson and Jace and has a beautiful wife, um, who's an attorney in Alabama, Ebony. So we're going to hop right in and tell us about, um, your childhood. Floyd is a child. Um, give us a little background. Well, I, um, coming up as a child, um, in a small town, fed Alabama, my mom, um, uh, was pretty much a single parent. So she was always working to try to um, provide for me and my other two brothers. And so we pretty much were always up under my grandma, which uh, who actually adopted my mom. But uh, as a child, we just enjoyed, you know, playing sports and well, pretty much played every type of sport you can think of. Just always staying busy, um, always in churches where we, you know, we was raised up inside the church, which of course later on we got away from. But um, yeah, just love sports. Love to just be, stay active, outside and active. Something the kids these days don't do. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. That's true. I'm always trying to get my boys to go uh, outside, like go outside. And, well, there's nothing to do. They well, like the phones and the tablets do. and all yeah. of that stuff. Yeah. <laughs> That's true. Um, so you had kind of a significant traumatic event that happened to you when you were 12 that kind of changed the course of, of your life. Tell me about that. Yes, ma'am. Uh, I remember being checked out of school one day. My mom didn't tell us what was going on. I just saw her in tears. You know, with me and my brother, we were checked out. Oldest brother, we were checked out of school. And I guess the first thing that came to our mind, you know, somebody had passed away. Mm-hmm. But when we pulled up to the house, because my mom never said anything, we pulled up to the house, the house was burned to the ground. Mm-hmm. Um, and that just devastated us, you know. Everything that we had, you know, uh, was gone. And I think I was maybe about 12 years old at the time. So, me losing my, my yearbooks, my pictures, and um, all of my trophies that I've accomplished, all the sports that I played, little love letters that I used to say from my little girlfriends and stuff like that. <laughs> but uh, everything, we lost everything, though. So, you know, to a 12-year-old, 13-year-old, you know, you feel like you lost everything. I was, mm-hmm. you know, it, it devastated us. That's everything that we had, you know, all of our clothes, shoes, everything it was gone. And, and, and like a, a couple of hours gone. And how did that impact you? Um, I think it, it brought me to a state of hopelessness. 
because shortly after that, me and my brother, we started getting into some things that, you know, we never thought we'd do, uh, going inside stores and, you know, stealing clothes, stealing shoes and you know, stuff of that nature, stuff that I thought we would never do. You know, uh, we just felt hopeless, though. You know, like, we don't. what, what else do we have to lose? We've already lost everything. So that's the state of mind that we were in. And how did you, so you grew up in your, your younger years in Alabama. Um, how did that fire end up impacting sort of where you, where you moved to after that? Um, I think, cause I moved to Detroit, Michigan shortly after that. And that was one of the reasons why we moved. Uh, my brother had gotten in some trouble and we had lost the house. So we, of course, I told you, you know, us feeling hopeless, what do we have to lose? We went ahead and just moved to Detroit. So um, by us feeling hopeless, um, it's like night and day, Detroit, Michigan, and Alabama, Fayette, Alabama anyway. You come from a place where like two or three traffic lights to this huge big city. You know, that's night and day. But some of the core values that always stuck with me, you know, always my mom and my grandma and raised us to always treat people how we wanted to be treated. And so you're in Detroit now. Um, you're living with extended family there. Yes, and you see this vibrant business happening all around you. What was that? So the neighborhood that I grew up in was east side of Detroit. Um, nothing but drug dealing. You know, was drug dealing, you had prostitution going on and, 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 and gang banging. Um, and we, um, you know, we liked the lifestyle that the drug dealers um, seemed to, to have. You know, it seemed like they were the ones with all of the money, all of the women. You know, all of the nice, fancy things. Uh, and, you know, they acquire these things by selling drugs. So I think that really was sparked our interest into going inside that lifestyle, seeing, you know, the, the money that came along with it. Mm-hmm. So I think that's that's a helpful for me, kind of like this freezing this moment in time. Um, people listening can probably see where this is headed. Floyd's about to get involved in some illegal activity, uh, selling drugs. But for a lot of people, it's difficult to understand kind of that jump from like Floyd, the kid who's out playing sports and doing things with his friends. And um, this traumatic event happens, it's hopelessness. But then why the, you know, sort of this fork in the road of why not, hey, I can go, you know, graduate high school and go to college. I can go, you know, do whatever versus kind of taking this other path of getting involved in the uh, illegal drug trade, um, which for people outside of that seems like that is so risky. Like people get arrested all the time and people get killed. And so talk through kind of that thought process for you, which, you know, as a teenager is not very uh, complex. <laughs> Teenagers yeah. don't have a lot of good reasoning. Um, but right. kind of talk through that, like how, how do there's, there's millions of kids that are getting drawn into this underground drug trade. Why talk about that, that what draws you into that? Or what drew you into that? I think uh, what really drew me into it is, you know, uh, pretty much for one, that's what I was around. You know, that's the only thing that I saw that around me that, you know, sparked my interest. Uh, seeing all the fancy cars and, you know, wads of money. I remember this one particular time, I think, that really led me to making up my mind saying this is what I wanted to do. I remember this one particular guy uh, that was down the street, well-known drug dealer. Me and my brother had went down and he actually paid us to help him count his money. And I remember staying up all night from probably like 12 o'clock that night to about five or six the next morning, just counting money. And so when I saw that as a teenager, you know, that's, it blew my mind. I've never seen that much money in my life. You know, it was probably close to a million dollars. Never seen that much money in my life. Uh, I think being exposed to that, that's what really just had clicked in my mind. Like, wow, this is what I want to do. I don't have to have a high school education to do this. I don't have to have, you know, too many friends, you know. And, and I think it just really just sparked that, you know, I can make it in this. You know, not even thinking about the consequences, you know, just blinded by the money. Mm. So th that's helpful to me because, you know, kind of the the narrative I grew up hearing is, you know, people, people get involved in this because they're just bad people. Um, and, and as I've talked with you offline about this over the last couple of years, um, just, it's been helpful for me to understand kind of the, um, the financial incentive structure of it. You know, you, you don't have to be 
a bad person to want to make money. I mean, that's, that's just kind of a human, <laughs> human right, desire. Right. I want to make money. I want to be able to provide for myself. Hey, if I can have even more nice things that, Hey, that's all the better. Um, so you're, you're seeing this not as, you know, I'm going to give up on my life, but rather this is how I'm going to be successful in life. Actually. Yes. Yes. So I think that, you know, by, by me seeing that and, most people think, you know, from the outside looking in that all drug dealers are bad. I'm going to say that first. Um, by me being incarcerated with, you know, so many different drugs and knowing people and being a drug dealer, you know, I'm able to see this thing from a different point, a different perspective. Uh, I was I was never a bad person, you know, in my mind. Wasn't going out there shooting and robbing and killing anyone. Uh, I was just looking at it as I was simply selling drugs. I was simply trying to survive and take care of my family. You know, it doesn't require you to put a gun to anyone's head or any of that. You're basically just waiting on people to call you and come and purchase drugs from you. So uh, in the mind of a, of a drug dealer, you're not really harming anyone. You know, mm-hmm. so I guess that's the the approach, the way that I looked at it. That was my perspective of it anyway. Mm-hmm. Which is kind of that's interesting to me because, um, you know, I think a lot of people would probably say, you know, no, you are harming people. And I know you've had a, a, a change of heart uh, over time yeah. about yeah. kind of your, your role in that, but certainly, um, and no, neither of us are saying it's okay to break the law or it's okay to sell right. drugs illegally right. or anything like that. Um, but trying to understand why these things are happening, why it is so compelling for people to enter into um, selling drugs and why, um, why that doesn't feel like this huge moral uh, dilemma for you. Cause I know from talking with you that you didn't only use that money for, um, you know, cars and watches and, you know, whatever else kind of consumeristic mm-hmm. you purchased with it. You used to purchase, you know, uh, government vouchers for food from people who were addicted to drugs and yeah. you knew they were going to not feed their kids, um, because they were going to sell those vouchers and use the money on drugs and you would buy the vouchers get somebody to go use them for food and deliver the food back to those kids. I know we've, we've had that conversation before. So um, talk through that. I guess maybe that's, I think that's kind of mind blowing for people. Um, And I had another, a pastor tell me that he said, you know, in my community, he was in a um, community with lots of drug dealing going on. He said, in my community, uh, the drug dealers are the ones who buy all the school supplies for the kids. And I'm like, mm-hmm. well, what? <laughs> this this does yeah. not fit the stereotype of this. Again, not saying this is okay, but we do have to understand what's happening. And if we want to try to address it. I think whatever you're around, you end up becoming. And I like to use the example of, you know, I know people who was raised up in the funeral business as kids. When they get older, they end up, you know, taking over their family's business and being inside the funeral business. Same way with, you know, house full of school teachers and, uh, attorneys, you know, most of the people in the household end up following that same uh, direction. And it's the same way with selling drugs. If you're in a neighborhood and your family is involved in it, uh, most drug dealers, they end up becoming the people who they are because the environment that they were around. So that's pretty much all that they knew, all they were taught, all that they were exposed to. And, um, and when you're talking about, you know, um, uh, the good things that we were doing inside the neighborhood, I think what really sparked my got my attention. I I, I seen so many uh, families who would sell all of their government assistant food stamps just to purchase drugs. And I think when I saw that, I knew already in my mind that you know they're going they're going to sell these government assistant vouchers to someone. So what I'm going to do, I'm going to step in and purchase these vouchers, and I'm gonna put the food back into the house because I I can't stand to see these little children in the neighborhood going hungry. Again, I was raised up to treat people how I want to be treated, you know, so I couldn't, I couldn't see that going on, but I knew I had the actual, the power to be able to change that. And so in my mind, since I was in that place of position to do something about it, that's, that's what we done. That's what me and my brother done. And not only that, you know, we bought some of the, you know, school children, uh, we had, you know, bought supplies and we bought clothes and shoes 
And I think I played a big part in that. We were, it was always in the back of my mind, everything that we lost. And I wish someone had, would, would have came along and, you know, bought us clothes and bought us shoes, which, which some people did. And so that's what I wanted to bring back that feeling to them. Let them know that somebody cared, you know? Mm-hmm. So I still, like, I could feel in my own mind, the sort of tension of like this, so I can like hear you talking about it. And I can yeah. always say, okay, like, I can, I can try to put myself in Floyd's shoes at the time, mm-hmm. or I can stay in my own shoes and say, this just makes no sense to me. Like how, you know, you're, you're doing things illegally, but you're also like taking care of kids. And, but part of the taking care of kids is, you know, buying government vouchers. Like there's all these kind of mi- mixed up, I guess, sort of, yeah. uh, is this right? Is this wrong? There's wrong things going on, but things you're trying to make right, even in the midst yeah. of that. And, um, so if people are kind of going, Hmm, this is like, I feel a lot of tension here. I think there is a lot of tension here in, yeah. in what's happening in this scenario. Do you feel that today? I know you've had a, a, a big change in your life and, and heart. Do you feel that even looking back on that time? Do I feel like tension? Yeah. Yeah. Between kind of the good things you were trying to do and the other things that you were involved in that, that you are yes. not so proud yes, of. Most definitely. Most definitely. I think when when it comes to wrongdoing, we try to we all try to use this this like skill in our mind that you know I may be doing wrong, but I'm not doing as bad as this person over here. I think we all do that mm. in some type of shape, form, or fashion in our mind. And I think that's what uh what I did. I think I, I knew that I was doing wrong, but at the same time, uh I knew that I wanted to do right. Mm. Kind of like what Paul talked about over there in Romans chapter seven, you know, I know the good that I supposed to do, but I do wrong. And so I think that since you, that's all that, that, that I knew, that's pretty much all that I knew. And not just me, I think that most of the people that I've met, I've met some good guys, really good guys who just made a mistake of being, you know, they sold drugs. So I think that you have in the back of your mind that I have to survive. I have to provide for my family. So this is the avenue that I chose to take. And rationalizing in your mind, you know, I'm not harming anyone physically, which you slowly are, but you really don't think you are because it's not violent. Mm. Mm-hmm. Did that make any sense? Yeah. Yeah. So I think that's, so there, there's certainly people who would say, you know, that's, it's true that you're not harming anyone. So I think about it as, you know, part of the work that we're doing is trying to bring that the the drug market into a legal regulated industry again, rather than kind of forcing it into this underground market. Cause I think the, yeah. the tension that, or the, um, maybe the lack of tension that you felt over, look, I'm, I have people that want to buy something and I can mm. sell it to them. And we're both happy with this arrangement. So why is this wrong? Why is this? Um, and that was kind of an interesting thing for me. And I'm still kind of on the journey of thinking, um, thinking through sort of the, um, the, the, the value, I guess, of laws related to trying to stop people from doing things that both people are happy doing. <laughs> like, you know, it's yeah. a business transaction. It is a, a consumer who wants to buy something and a seller who wants to sell something. They're both happy with the transaction. The government just isn't happy with that and that's how I viewed it. That's how in my mind, that's how I viewed it. I said, you know, I said to myself where they're going to go out and get it from somebody. They might as well go ahead and get it from me, mm-hmm. you know, and that's how I felt. Yeah. Hey friends, this podcast is just a part of the work we do at End It For Good, inviting more people to this conversation on changing the way we approach drugs and addiction. We want strong families, safe communities, and policies that uphold the dignity and value of every single human life. If you're not signed up for our monthly newsletter yet, head on over to enditforgood.com, scroll to the bottom of the page and sign up. You'll get all the info on the rest of the work that we do, including live events, and it'll get you plugged in to the End It For Good movement. Yeah. So uh, to take that a step further for kind of how I think about it now is people are going to buy it from somebody. So instead of buying it from somebody like Floyd, who's selling it on the street, could we allow them to purchase it from a legal place and maybe mm-hmm. Floyd gets into the legal industry instead of this underground industry that's that does end up having a lot of violence associated with it even if you're not you know actively participating in uh in that violence mm-hmm. so so you start selling 
you get arrested uh, numerous times for that over the years in and out of jail, spending different amounts of time in there. Um, what keeps you, what keeps you going back to that? Cause I, I think, you know, for me, like the thought of being arrested is like completely terrifying. So to me, I would think, you know, one arrest. Wow. That would like, I would never do whatever that was again. Yeah. Um, talk through that. Cause that you, you ended up spending a number of years in prison, um, yeah. over time. Talk through kind of your mindset of why didn't the first arrest sort of produce this, you know, Hey, I don't want to go back to that change life. I think one of the main things that kept me doing what I was doing is because the money, mm. all I saw was dollar signs. And each time after my incarceration, I thought that, okay, I'm a little smarter. I got caught this way this time. So in my mind, I was like, okay, well, maybe I'll do it this way because you're always blinded by the money. Mm. And at the same time, you know, I was always, when I was living that lifestyle, I was always intoxicated, you know, pretty much every day, all day. I was intoxicated off of something, you know? So I think overall, not only is that the only thing that I knew, I didn't, take out the time to learn anything new uh, since. So I, I would always resort back to what I knew. And overall, it was always the money. So, you know, money will make you do some strange things. Mm. Mm-hmm. And your mind can actually trick you into thinking that, you know, I won't get caught this time because I hated being incarcerated. I hated being around a bunch of men all the time. I, it took me a while to figure that out for myself. I was, I was like, what am I? What's going on with me? What's wrong with me? Why would I continue to jeopardize my freedom, you know, for this. And overall, that's exactly what it was. It was the money. I felt like it was worth it. Mm. Yeah. It was worth taking that chance. Yeah. Um, again, a good point of the financial incentive of this underground market. It's not because uh, Floyd is, you know, I just want to be a gangster. It's, no, there's a, there's a reason yeah. why this is working for me. I'm making a ton of money doing it. And maybe if I tweak something, I won't get, you know, caught this time. Uh, Exactly. So you had kind of another traumatic event in your teen years. Two of your uncles uh, were arrested, incarcerated for selling drugs. They provided for a lot of your extended family. How did that impact your family and kind of this, the next trajectory of your life? So, so my, my two uncles that were incarcerated, they were the backbone of my family. They, um, they, they took care of our whole entire family. So, um, when they were incarcerated, me and my brother, we had a choice either to come back to Alabama or stay in an abandoned house. We chose to stay in the abandoned house because we saw hope living in this abandoned house. Now we stayed next door to a, a drug, uh, drug house. And so we ended up turning this abandoned house into a drug house. We ended up selling drugs out of that house. Um, so when, when they were incarcerated and they were gone, we felt like that we were pretty much on our own. Mm. So that about that time when you were 17 was your first arrest that kind of continued on. But you had an experience in that first arrest where you met someone else uh, that was also arrested for the same thing that you had been. Yeah. How tell me about that interaction with him. It brought me back to reality. Um, me and this guy, 17 years old, uh, we had the same charges going inside, uh, inside the, the jail in, um, Detroit and, um, uh, me getting to talk to him, you know, we're talking to, you know, they call the jailhouse lawyers. These guys tell us how much time we're facing. And so, uh, I think we pretty much both had the same thoughts. He acted on it. I didn't, um, he killed himself, mm-hmm. um, because he didn't, he didn't want to, I guess, go through what he thought that he was having to go through, uh, which that was prison. Cause that's what we were facing. It was prison time. Uh, he killed himself. And I think, you know, me growing up in Alabama and my mom and my grandma instilling faith in me, you know, I, I turned to God, even though I had gotten out of the church all those years, I picked up my Bible. I started reading and started praying. And I just put my faith and trust in God. Um, I don't think I had I'm not going to say that the courage, because I, in my mind, I did want to commit suicide, but I was like, I can't do that. So what did cross my mind? I said, well, maybe I can get someone to kill me. Maybe I'll make one of these guys kill me. But that, all that crossed my mind. I, I felt a, a sense of hopelessness, even then at that point as well. But that kind of like woke me up like, wow, this is reality. Maybe I need to change my life. 
shortly mm-hmm. after that, of course, we talked about it, you know, um, I got right back into that lifestyle. I think there's something that goes on with the brain that you think that, you know, if you try to tweak it or do something different, you know, it won't happen again. You know, so shortly after that, I ended up getting right back into the same lifestyle. So you end up back in Alabama um, because the judge ends up letting you, instead of sending you to prison um, as a teenager, even though you were incarcerated in an adult jail as a teenager, um, but instead of sending you to prison, he allows you to go back to Alabama to be with your mom. The judge has seen how involved your mom is in your life. Um, Hope that would be a fresh start. Uh, It did not end up being a, a fresh start in terms of your you're dealing. It was a, a a bit of a step up. Um, what what happened when you got there? So I'm gonna go back to what you were talking about. When, by me being, you know, the judge slapping me on the wrist. My mom. It was over a four month period. The judge saw that my mom was catching the Greyhound bus all the way from Alabama to Detroit, Michigan, which is like 18 to 20 hour bus trip. The judge said, you know, if you have somebody to care about you this much to keep coming all of your court days, you know what? I'm gonna give you a chance. Um, so she done that, slapped me on the wrist, gave me three years probation, told me, you know, as long as I don't get in any trouble, it'll be off my record. I moved back to Alabama. So when I moved back to Alabama, I I find out shortly, because I'm this is in my mind, this drug dealing lifestyle has been ingrained in my brain. You know, I'm chasing this money. So I start hanging around, you know, guys who are actually in Alabama, you know, selling drugs. Uh, so I found out that, you know, the same thing that I'm selling in Detroit, Michigan for $5, I can sell for $25 and $30 in Alabama. So, boom, a light bulb goes off in my head. At the time, I think I maybe I'm 17 years old. So I'm like, wow. Shortly after that, I started transporting drugs from Detroit, Michigan to Alabama and, you know, quadrupling what I was making. So that was another, you know, avenue for me to make, you know, four and five times as much as I was already making. Yeah. And I know everyone because this is where I'm from, you know, so. Yeah. It's like a better opportunity to me. Right. In my mind. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, you had several near death experiences over these years of um, of selling. Uh, How how did that impact you? Uh, I got I got robbed multiple times selling drugs. Uh, I was actually in a shootout, which I I, I was shot in the back on one incident. Um, And I, I got out of the hospital the very next day. The very next day, I was still selling drugs. And at that point of time in my life, I had I had increased in sales and I had moved to like a whole different. I was like knee deep in the drug game at that time. So uh, I felt like I couldn't get out. I was making so much money. It didn't make sense to me to get out. And so um, I felt like, you know, now I have to be more careful. Like you said, I'm going to tweak this thing differently this time. I can do it a little bit, a little bit better. Each time I felt like I could do it a little smarter because of the money. Mm. So much money coming in, you know? Yeah. It's hard to say no when you have. It was very hard to say no, especially if that's all you know, you know? Yeah. I dropped out of high school, second semester, 12th grade. School that I went to was pretty much a fashion show. You know, now I don't have my uncles in my life buying me all these expensive clothes anymore. So now my pride won't allow me to go to school wearing the same clothes and you know, so now I just feel like, you know, it's better for me to just drop out of school. I can make more money just sitting in the drug spot rather than going to school. So that made sense to me. So even if you want to get out at this point, you got to face, well, what else am I going to do? How am I going to go make a life? How am I going to go make money? A small fraction of what you were making selling yeah. drugs, but even you don't have a high school degree at this point and, you know, yeah. all of that. Is that kind of... I think people just think, oh, stop selling drugs. Just, just get, just quit. Um, I wish it was but, that easy. <laughs> yeah. It's, is, is that true? That kind of seeing even another pathway. It, it, it wasn't possible at the time. And I say it wasn't possible because I was more so addicted to the lifestyle than anything. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've got this expensive pill habit that I've got to uh, be able to maintain expensive alcohol habit that I've got to maintain, Um, not to mention, you know, the people that I'm actually paying, you know, to be on the payroll that was working for me at the time. So I'm like, wow, these people are depending on me. So I've got whole families that are depending on me now. I can't just get out, you know, 
it was impossible to me in my mind at the time. Hmm. So, so time out from sort of Floyd's story and talk us through, um, you know, how does, how does selling drugs actually work like day in the life of somebody who's selling drugs? Because most of, you know, for, for somebody like me, all we have ever seen of that or experience of that is like what we see on the news. So we see, you know, a very extreme story. Um, cause that's just what news covers is something that's, you know, sort of extreme. Um, what, what is that actually like in the real world? I mean, it's happening like, you know, thousands of transactions happening every day in every state in this country. What does that actually look like for people? Help help people like me who don't have a an experience of that understand what what's actually happening there. Pretty much just a, a simple phone call and a transaction. Sometimes it's not even a phone call. You see people in person, you know, they let you know what they want or what they need. Okay, go over here and get it. Drop the money off or give me the money now. That's it. So it's just a a, a business running, not legally, but just a business. That's the, that's the like, small side of it. You know, the, the larger side of it is, you know, going out of state, going out of town, probably, you know, we used to fly. Sometimes we would, we would drive and ride a bus uh, and purchase large amounts of drugs. We meet the supplier there. Uh, you know, wasn't any confrontation, you know, give them the money, get the product and just leave. It was just uh, pretty much that simple. Hmm. So the, I think, um, one of the things I feel like I have learned, one of the things I still struggle with is sort of this thinking of um, trying to put aside the things that I saw as like my stereotype of, you know, what's really happening. Like people just want to go out there and do violence. People want to. And, and so there there is violence and the whole industry underground is is criminal. I mean, all of it is illegal. Um, and yet the, the vast majority of transactions happening and things like that are, um, like you said, they're, they're non-confrontational. It's people selling something, people buying something. Um, and so I think maybe I'm trying to highlight that because I think it's hard for people to, to think of how could a legal drug market ever work? Like it is inherently criminal. It's inherently violent. Um, but really it's, it's, and, you know, and it's driven by people that just want to be criminals when when really everything that you have said is it's driven by financial incentive. There's massive mm-hmm. amounts of money to be made. That's why people get involved in it. Then you get kind of into this lifestyle as well as the money and then all yeah. these other people that you're with and it's where your friends are. And so there's a whole culture around it. But it's the the kind of the axis that it turns on is financial incentive and it runs just like any other business. These, you know, the people who excel in it are people who are business savvy. Um, yeah. Am I, are you tracking with that? Am I, does that sound like I'm putting those pieces together? Well, what was the, was it, was, what was the question? Is that, does that sound like, as I'm kind of describing that, does that sound like your experience sort of on the other side of that? So I'm kind of thinking through it as somebody who's never been in it. Um, yeah. trying to understand, trying to put aside, I guess, the, the, the stereotype and these kind of sensationalized news stories to, to mm. see sort of what are the mechanics of this? It's financial incentives, business transactions, and that ends up, there's so much financial incentive, so many transactions happening mm. that it just creates, you know, there's a whole culture around it that you then become part of as well. And I think the I think the violent part comes into it, just like with any other business, you know, uh, people get greedy. So even with the drug game, that's where the violent comes in. You know, people trying to take over the, over other people's territories or people that doesn't have as much as what you have. They start watching you and they feel like, you know, I'm just going to go ahead and just take you out and take what you have. I think that's the violent part that comes in. it. But, you know, even if you look at different businesses, you have people that, you know, even in the stock market, you got insider trading and stuff like that going on, which all that stuff comes from just greed. So I think, you know, the the violent part comes in from, you know, the greedy side of it, the greed for aspect of it. And even when you were robbed, when you were selling in Alabama, um, you know, it, in a in an illegal economy, it's all cash based. So there's massive amounts of actual cash changing hands rather than, exactly. you know, other exactly. kinds of bit legal businesses that can transfer their money through banking systems. And you don't have somebody actually driving around town 
with a million dollars or a thousand dollars or whatever it is. Um, but you do in the illegal drug market. So the, the incentive to forcibly take other people's drugs or cash or whatever is, is really high. It is. And that's where, again, that's where the violence comes in. And I had the opportunity to meet the guy who I had to sh- shoot out with. I think I told you about that, but I shot him and he shot me. He showed me where I shot him at and I showed him where he shot me. You know, we sat down, and we talked about it. He said, you know, just how you were raised up as a drug dealer. I was raised up to rob people. So I'm a robber and you're a drug dealer, you know, but mm-hmm. uh, just speaking with him and, you know, talking to him and seeing his point of view is, you know, all he saw was dollar signs. You know, he somebody had told him that we had rooms full of money and stuff like that. So that's what he came to get. He came to get the cash. And that was that was what was in his mind. Hmm. So that's what, you know, actually, that's the part of it that attracts the violent part Hmm. of the business, of course. Is all the cash available? All of the cash is. Yes. Hmm. Yep. That makes sense. Because if you couldn't, if, if, if a person, if it came to them having to steal credit cards and debit cards and stuff like that, nobody would do it. Because it's impossible to use someone else's, especially to get loads of money off of it, use someone else's credit card or debit card. But by it being actual cash, oh, yes, that that's, you know, that makes it make sense for them. Mm. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah, that's a good point. I think it's uh, so much of our work is is not saying, could this make sense for you, kind of the person listening, but rather, can you put yourself in someone else's shoes to see why this is making sense to them? Uh, it makes sense that Floyd is involved in this, given the opportunities that he had at the time, what he saw people making money from, the massive amounts of cash involved. Um, it, it, it's, not, um, it's not saying it's okay to just admit, I can see how someone would be incentivized to participate in this. Uh, yeah, there's a lot of cash to be made. Hey friends, you may be listening to this and you're new to this conversation or you don't agree with our perspective and that's fine. You're welcome here. But if you agree and you want to know what you can do to spread the movement, head over to enditforgood.com slash two minutes. That's the number two and the word minutes and sign up for our weekly two minutes for good email. It gives you one thing to do in less than two minutes to expand this conversation. You're busy and this is a quick way to make a difference. So talk about your incarceration. What was incarceration like for you? To be honest, uh, first going in, I was I was frightened. I was uh, I was confused, didn't know what to think. Um, I was I was I felt betrayed because, you know, the people who I who I took care of, you know, people closest to me, uh, those were the people who set me up and turned me in. You know, so um, there was a sense of uh, multiple different feelings involved when I was first incarcerated. And each time, like I said before, each time. I felt like, you know, yeah, I'm not going through this again. You know, uh, I've got to find a better way. And so uh, each time that I was actually released, I, I worked a regular job for a few weeks. That didn't that never lasted long because this expensive lifestyle that I had to, uh, I felt like I had to uh, uh, maintain. But uh, being being incarcerated and being incarcerated with the guys who I, who I got an opportunity to meet, uh, it was really life changing for me. And I want to partic- bring up this one particular story, really what got my my attention and I, what made me uh, become aware that my actions and my choices affected my loved ones. This one particular guy that I know uh, here in Alabama, he was uh, sentenced to 15 years. He was, he was caught with a gun and drugs. So in Alabama, the mandatory minimum is 15 years. I think it's federal all across the board, 15 year mandatory minimum. But he's never been had, never even had a speeding ticket. He was sentenced to 15 years and it stressed his mom out so bad to the point to where she had a stroke and her whole left side, she became paralyzed. Mm. So I had to watch this guy. I'm talking about he quit eating, quit talking to people. His eyes were just started getting black. You could tell he was, you know, he was restless, hardly getting ever any rest because he had to live with the fact that knowing his actions is what caused his mom to be paralyzed for the rest of her life. So I think that was one of the eye-opening experiences for me as far as making the choices and decisions that I made while being incarcerated. Hmm. Did I answer your question? I'm sorry. I may have went. Yeah, no. So, so talk about kind of how, you know, I know you spent even, even kind of as you're going back and forth between incarceration and getting back into selling drugs, there was this kind of spiritual awakening and growth happening. Um, 
at the same time you're actually selling drugs in prison <laughs> yeah. at the same time you're reading your bible and talk through all of that so when i was actually selling drugs uh in jail that was before i was sent, sentenced and sent to prison um you could pretty much the jail that i was at you could pretty much get anything you wanted uh, as long as you had the money and you had the connections and so i had the the money at the time and i had the connections i had um we had jailers um uh, who would you know, we knew that they would search the trustees a certain way and they would search our visitors a certain way. So we would tell them where to hide the drugs at and bring them in. And once they brought the drugs in, talking about our visitors and the uh, the trustees, other inmates who actually was were on work release. So we used to pay them to bring drugs in. And um, even though I was, you know, reading the Bible, praying and everything at that time also, I still felt like I wasn't doing anything bad because in my mind, you know, people are going to still buy drugs and, you know, if they're going to buy it, they might as well get it from me. You know, so it was always an opportunity in my mind. Mm-hmm. I felt like since I wasn't physically harming anyone, like, you know, violently harming anyone, anything of that nature, I wasn't doing anything wrong. I was ignorant to that fact, you know, so mm-hmm. and I think I think society, that's the part that they don't understand. You know, in a drug dealer's mind, since I'm not violent. You know, I'm not harming anybody. I'm minding my own business. People are coming to get it from me. I'm not forcing this on anyone. They're coming to me. So that's what goes inside of a drug dealer's mind, you know. Mm-hmm. And then the violence comes in because this other guy grew up saying, hey, you know, I'm I'm going to go steal somebody else's money. Uh, so if yeah. he comes and steals your money or maybe not Floyd's money, somebody else's money. <laughs> well, now, how are we going to have to make him pay for stealing our money? Because we can't just let him steal our money and and just do that. He's going to come steal it again. That's right. If you let him get away with it, other people are going to start doing it. So that's where people form in their mind. Look, we have to make an example somewhere. And I felt like that too back in, and I actually, I've done some, you know, some violent acts back then because I felt like I had to make a point that way will put fear in other people's heart that they wouldn't try. Mm, you know? Mm-hmm. So that's, yeah. yeah, that's where the violent part comes in. Yeah. People have to actually bring that out of most people. <laughs> Uh, Again, I was I was never out. that I was never that person. It's, you know, people mm-hmm. brought that side out of me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So the the industry sort of, uh, you know, you you can't take care of any uh, the the cash basis incentivizes robbing to happen, and you can't go to the yeah. courts and say, "Hey, they stole my stuff," right. <laughs> because you're breaking the law. So you have to, you know, that I mean, that's the incentive is take care of this myself. Uh, the best way force. you see fit. Yeah. yeah, the best way that you see fit. So whether or not that's the right thing to do, it is an, yeah. an, a predictable outcome of yes. what's happening in that in that industry. So the last time that you were incarcerated, you ended up you were facing a life sentence. Uh, what yeah. was what was that for? What did that feel like to you? What was that experience like? Looking at the potential that you would never be free ever. I really. I, I was, I'm going to back up for a minute, uh, go back until the, when I was, went to, when I first went to state prison, I was facing 30 years then, uh, and I was praying and I was, you know, I was in the Bible then, and I witnessed the hand of God at my sentencing, where my attorney came back and told me that the drugs were missing, the drugs ended up coming up missing out of the evidence room. So I think that point of time prepared me for this point of time. Uh, Cause I always had hope. I always felt like, you know, God was going to do something in my life uh, that was going to change my entire situation. Even though reality set in to why I had to actually sign my life over. They asked me, you know, where do you want your body to go? When, once you die in prison, you have mm-hmm. to sign this waiver. Do you want us to bury you in prison or do you want it to ship to your family and loved ones? So I had to sign a form that said, I want my body shipped to my family and my loved ones. So I think that's when reality set in. But at the same time, I still had a little bit of hope. And I think, you know, that's why God kept me in my right mind, because I really should have went crazy. You know, you know, uh, at that time, I witnessed people who testifying against me, who I took care of, close people, you know, that were, that were near and dear to my heart, you know, testified against me. So I felt like, you know, I don't have any friends. I'm hopeless. But at the same time, I still had a little bit of hope. Um, and I think that's what actually uh played a big part in my whole entire situation changing mm-hmm. uh, at my federal sentencing 
uh, which I didn't even expect this, the day of my sentence, and I had people speaking up on my behalf, which they had no reason whatsoever to speak on my behalf because I, when it came to selling drugs, I turned the entire city upside down. Uh, not with the violent acts, but just the selling drugs, I turned the entire town upside down. So I don't deserve to have the mayor speaking up for me at my sentencing, city councilman speaking up for me at my uh, sentencing, uh, different preachers and pastors, my probation officer at the time, a retired probation officer, all these different people with these different titles chose to spoke up for me on my behalf. So uh, I think that played a definitely played a, a big part of me not receiving that life sentence. And again, I did not deserve any one of them whatsoever to be speaking up on my behalf. That's another one of those God things that happened in my situation. Mm-hmm. But it was a wake up call for me. And it was a wake up call for me because I had lost my brother. My brother had gotten killed during that process. Um, and I'm facing a life sentence. And at this point in time, I don't have any money left. My hope and you know all my trust was in my money paying expensive attorneys. And I think I told you about that. You know, my, my wife saw all this money that I spent with these attorneys and I kind of joked about it a little bit. That may be why, why the reason why she became an attorney. <laughs> but I, I grew up, I, I grew up watching this and I seen these guys, you know, paying attorneys to stay free. So I thought that, you know, that same thing could happen with me, but it was a different story when it came to the federal courts. Mm, mm-hmm. Different story. So you end up serving the the last time you're incarcerated, you end up serving um, seven and a half years in in federal prison. Um, You were engaged at that point. Uh, You would marry your wife later. But how did you spend those years in prison that was maybe different than what you had done before? Because your life was very different when you came out that time. Yeah. So I think my biggest turnaround was at the time by me finding out that I'm facing a life sentence and my brother getting killed. There was a preacher who came into the jail uh, who was an ex uh, drug addict. He came into the jail and he looked at me one day. He said, man, God, I don't know who you are. I don't know what you're going through. But God told me to tell you that the only reason why you're going through everything you're going through is because he wants you to get his word. And so what I started doing, I bought like three or four bags of coffee. And what I would do, I would drink coffee all night. And I would actually start reading the Bible as if it was a novel or something. And before I knew it, you know, I started getting all this different understanding from the word. And I started doing Bible studies. And I started seeing people get saved, guys crying out, giving their life to the Lord. And so that touched me. So in the midst Mm -hmm. of my pain, I found my purpose. And before I knew it, you know, guys that came in there, they said, man, look here, man, you know, you seem like you know the Bible more than anybody in the, in the, on the, on the, on the, uh, in the, on the compound. This is what we want to do. We got some guys over here that's going to form a choir. They can sing and everybody already voted and agreed that you're going to be the pastor. And I'm like, man, get out of here. Man. I am not about to be no pastor. <laughs> Actually at the time, you know, I really, I despise certain preachers and pastors because different cities and different states that I lived in, I've always had contact and sold drugs to different preachers and different pastors. So I didn't respect them. I pretty much, I didn't respect people inside the church. So I didn't think that I would be doing what I do now. Cause I was, like I said, I despise preachers and pastors, but by me doing it and I accepted that calling from those guys and from the Lord, seeing people, you know, getting saved. And even it was one Muslim guy in there. He came to Christ. He got saved, you know, mm-hmm. so that, that changed my whole mind of, you know, that just blew my mind. So by the time I get sentenced and I go to federal prison, I continue to do what I had been doing, you know, still doing Bible study, still reading, studying the word. But I also started, I knew that I was going to have, I was going to get out one day. And I knew that I didn't want to go back to selling drugs because I knew that I had a, I had a love and a care for people now that I couldn't just sell them poison. You know, I viewed it different then, you know, it's like I had a spiritual awakening and I became born again. So I knew that I had to learn something. And, you know, as I'm sitting in there praying, I would have guys walk up to me like, here, man, read this book. And it would be books on the stock market and books like on real estate. And before I knew it, I started teaching classes on stock uh, options trading. I started teaching classes on, on real estate. And, you know, and once I was released, uh, I started putting those things into play. And that's what I do today. To talk about your life post, uh, post-incarceration when you came out what's life been like every the last couple of years since then? So when I came home, uh, I said, I'm like, yes, thank you, Lord. You delivered me. I told you, you know, once you deliver me, you'll ne- I'll never go back again. But it came up in my spirit. God said, no, that's exactly where I want you to go back to. So one of the first things I did when I came home is uh, I talked to the preacher who went inside the county jail. and I asked him, could he get me in? And I didn't know that this was going to be a, a, a lifetime thing. And I still do it to this day. 
But I asked him to take me in. I went in there and I preached a message to the guys one day. I saw guys crying out, guys who knew me in my old life. You know, they crying out, people getting saved. And, you know, I, I got that same sense that I got when I was in there. And I was like, wow, this is my purpose. So what I told God I wasn't going to do, I'm doing now. <laughs> hmm. You know, so um, not only do I go inside, the, you know, the jails now, also going to juvenile detention facilities. I speak at different schools. Uh, but shortly after that, though, I, I married my fiance. And I, I like to joke and say that, you know, we're going to go down in the Guinness Book of World Records for the longest engagement because we got engaged back in 2005, 2006. I didn't get released until 2014. Mm-hmm. So wow. even though I tried to push my wife off all of those years, you know, she still stayed with me. She still, you know, flew out there and visited me, you know, didn't miss a beat. I always answering the phone when I called, writing letters, emails, everything, you know. So I knew that was another God thing. Mm-hmm. And she was in law school. Uh, for she part was of that in law time school while, while I was yes yeah she was in law school so she graduated law school moved to Alabama became barred uh, licensed barred attorney here in the state of Alabama mm. I like the joke too because I was actually her first client she actually spoke up at my parole hearing when I was in the state uh, prison I went down there I got my GED and I completed the drug program everything that I completed she put it all in like a little package and she spoke in front of these five individuals who had uh, to make the decision whether or not to grant me parole. And so I guess they thought they saw this little cute girl and they were amazed by her presentation, you know? So I think that's what probably really sparked her. Like, wow, this is kind of fun. You know, she, she got me released, you know, I think that was her first, well, I know it was her her first experience Mm. for advocating for someone behind bars. Mm. And that was way before she ever went to law school or anything. That was way before she went to law school. Yes. She was actually, she was in college, but she wasn't in law school at the time. Mm. That's, that's really cool. Um, What do you think are maybe some of the biggest misconceptions that people have about the criminal justice system or incarceration from your experiences? I think one of the biggest misconceptions is that people think that they are rehabilitation facilities, which Mm -hmm. they're really not. Uh, Been going from state prison to federal prison. uh, There's really not too much that's there that's set in place for your rehabilitation, uh, you have to actually get these things yourself. You have to, you know, have your family and loved ones probably see you in different books and stuff like that, stuff of that nature. There's no, uh, no one's actually forcing you to become a better person. Mm. Um, you got, I've seen uh, a lot of people get inside these places and get comfortable. You don't have to worry about who's, you know, what you're going to eat because they're going to feed you. People are washing your clothes. You get up, you may have a job every day. But, you know, some people, they don't have to get up and work. Some people just sit down and watch TV all day. So it can be a, a place of uh, comfort for some people. Uh, so I think the biggest misconception is that, you know, they help people change. It really has to be in that individual. So I don't mm-hmm. think this institution will actually um, does what people think is designed to do. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's designed to hold people, but yeah. but not to it's a warehouse it's a warehouse that's it mm. yeah so what do you think could have helped young floyd as you think back to young floyd you work a lot with you know trying to help youth make different decisions than you had made um and and there's a lot of people who say you know i want to help my community or i want to help kids or what are what are the things that you think people could take away for helping the next generation make a different set of choices I would say this, to sum it up, I would say two things. Number one, first of all and foremost, uh, if you are a child of God, I think it's important for you to know who you are and know who he is. Uh, because if, if I had known you know, him and known that I was a child of God, I wouldn't have been so influenced to try to fit in places where I didn't fit in. I had a struggle with trying to be different. You know, I wanted to fit in. I wanted to be accepted. And I think we all have that longing of wanting to be mm. accepted. Yeah. So that's a major influence that plays on our, uh, our, our youth. And so uh, that's what I try to deter them from now when I go speak to, speak to them. I try to get them and try to ingrain it into them to know who you are, first of all. That way you won't be confused in where you're going in life. And uh, number two, I would say financial literacy. If I had known the importance of credit, the importance of uh, financial literacy, period, you know, how to get a savings account, bank account, how to invest in the stock market. People were coming up to me constantly telling me, 
You know, man, you know you're going to go to jail one day. You know what's wrong with what you're doing. I knew I was doing wrong. I just didn't know anything else. You know, I didn't know that I could make four and five times that much money in the real estate or in the stock market. All I had to do was actually sit down and read a few books and take a few courses. Didn't even have to go to college for it. All I have to do is actually just sit down and, you know, do some reading, do some studying. It may take some time to do that. But I didn't know that. So what I do now is try to provide uh, our youth and other people that may be still out there living, you know, in this lifestyle. I let them know that there is hope. There are other options out there. Um, and I, I teach also financial literacy. So that would have mm-hmm. played a major role in my life as a, as a youth. And as we wrap up, I want to ask you at the end if there's anything else you want to share. But what are some of the things that you um, learned along the journey that you feel like maybe maybe were lessons that are lessons other people miss, maybe from having different life experiences? What are some of the things that you learned through a painful journey with lots of bad decisions that are part of that? Most of our lives have lots of bad decisions that are part of them. Um, what are some of the things you've taken away from that, that, that would be helpful for other people? Um, I'm always trying to learn from other people's learning so that I don't have to go through all of the same experiences to kind of take that away. Um, I had a friend that told me one time, you know, if you, if you see someone suffering, um, run alongside them because you'll learn, you'll get to learn the lessons they're learning. Uh, yeah. without having to go through the same experiences that they're going through. And so whether that's suffering that, you know, comes from something you had no control over, like a, a disease or something like that, or whether it's something that is maybe part of bad decisions, um, but we can still learn from everyone. Everyone has things yeah. they're learning that can be passed on to other people. So what were, what are the things you'd like to pass on to other people from your experiences? Uh, if I could just sum it up real quick, I would say, uh, don't judge a book by its cover. You never know who you may need. You never know um, what God may do in that individual's life. Mm. And the reason why I say that is because I, I misjudged an attorney that I, I had hired. I think I told you about that. An attorney that I hired when I was going through my parole hearing. Um, this guy came in, you know, I paid him a lot of money for my parole hearing. This guy came in looking like a cowboy. You know, he came in looking like the man off the oatmeal box, big old long boots and mustache that kind of curled up a big old cowboy hat. And he took my case and he told me, you know, that I was facing serious charges. But he, he said something that stuck with me. He said, uh, he said, I can't help you much, but I want to ask you a question. He said, do you uh, believe in Jesus Christ? And I said, yes, sir. And he was like, get up and give me a hug. And that man, he gave me a hug. Um, that man gave me hope when he said that. Mm. Um I like to bring that up because I judged him. Uh, and just like I judged him, people have judged me because of my past. So the same people who were trying to incarcerate me back then and, you know, saying I was this and I was this terrible guy. Uh, a lot of people call me now. A lot of those people call me now and ask me to speak to their children that's dealing with addiction or, you know, can I pray with, you know, such and such, such, such or can I come share my story over here or over there? A lot of those same people uh, call me now. Uh, so you never know what God may turn a person into. Because hmm. when God starts turning things around, he can completely change anything. So I would just say, you know, never judge a book by its cover. I would always try to help someone uh, more than I would look down on them or try to hurt them. Mm-hmm. Anything else you'd like to share as we wrap up? Anything maybe I should have asked you and didn't ask you or? Oh <laughs> uh, no, ma'am! I don't think so. I think it's pretty much. I appreciate you for the for the invite. Yeah, uh, I'm you. glad to glad to have you. I've it's been helpful to me to to talk through these things with you, and I'm always on a learning journey of trying to see the world through other people's eyes and understand the um the reasons why people do the things they do, the decisions they make. You know, people people make decisions based on things that make sense to them. So, um, and I think I, for a lot of my life, I just thought, you know, if people make different decisions than me, they're just crazy. Um, and now I'm like, no, they're not there. There's reasoning behind why people do the things they do. And, and particularly if we, if we want them to make different decisions, we need to understand what's causing those bad decisions in the first place. I agree. There's a saying that I always like to say, whatever, whatever inside of a person, that's what's going to come out. Mm. And you, you know it from raising your children. Whatever we put in them, that's what's going to come out. 
So most of the people who they do what they do because that's what was placed ingrained in them. That's why they do it. So I think, you know, especially as children of God, we have to help them change their thinking. Mm-hmm. Um, so they can actually see that everything that they thought was right. You know, it's actually wrong. Mm-hmm. There's a better way, you know, yeah. transform by the renewing of your mind. Love it. Thank you, Floyd. I appreciate it. Um, where can people find you if they want to connect with you? I didn't even ask you that beforehand. Is there any way you want to leave for people to connect with you? Oh, I'm still trying to learn all this different, all this new technology. (laughs) (laughs) My my 13 year old says that that Facebook is for old people. Right. So I guess, I I guess I'm I'm a part of the old crowd because that's pretty much all that I do that I'm active on. I'm trying to get out to everything else, Twitter and everything. But as of right now, though, I'm just on Facebook. So you catch me on Facebook uh, at Floyd Rogers Jr. All right. Sounds good. Thanks, Floyd. I appreciate your your story and appreciate your your work today and in lots of ways trying to um, help people make communities better serve your community and um, be successful thank you so much in what you do thank you so much god bless you you too so how do we shift our drug policies from a criminal justice approach to a public health approach by inviting one person at a time to change their mind change minds are the catalyst to changed laws. But many people are only willing to have this conversation when they're invited to by someone that they trust. That's you. Invite your friends, coworkers, other people in your circle of influence to consider a better way. At End It For Good, our hope is that people who hear will become people who tell. Start a conversation and join the movement to end it for good.